one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Talking Space, episode 1305, for the week of Monday, September 27th, 2021. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, everybody. Apologies for the voice. We're fighting a bit of a chest cold here, um, but uh, we're, we're here, and we're going to try to hang in there with the rest of the team and bring you some good material. So uh, so let's let's kick the tires and light the fires. Sounds like a plan to me, and uh, we're glad you're at least feeling better and able to join us. And welcome as well, Mark Raderman. I'm glad to be here. Awesome, and welcome as well, Dr. Kat Robinson. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, we should point out it is morning where Kat Robinson is currently located in Australia, whereas it is much later in the day here in the eastern coast of the United States. But that's the beauty of this show, is that we can all be from anywhere and everywhere and all unite around a shared love of all things space. Anyway, because of that, let's jump right into the episode. Uh, So the first thing that we're going to start with is probably one of the biggest news stories, whether you like it or not, uh, of the last month or so, and that was the launch of the Inspiration4 mission. The mission, which was funded entirely by billionaire Jared Isaacman, who took command of the mission, included seats for three other people, and on board with him was Cyan Proctor, Christopher Sambrowski, and Haley Arsenault, who was a patient at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which was the aim of this mission, besides getting four people into space, was to raise as much money as possible for St. Jude's. Uh, The goal was $200 million, uh, and in the end, including the $100 million put in by Jared Isaacman, they did reach and pass that goal. And on top of that, on September 16th, 2021, at 8.02 p.m. Eastern Time, the four-member crew launched from Cape Canaveral and Launch Complex 39A, splashing down just a few days later uh, in the waters of the Atlantic Ocean, just off the coast of Florida. Uh Much of their mission was not televised. They did occasionally do a few live interactive things uh, with St. Jude, with the New York Stock Exchange, and then one uh, public video that they did with uh, SpaceX. And then they have since the mission been sharing a lot of photos and videos that they've taken with their iPhone, and their entire mission has also been documented on a Netflix series as well. I was there for the mission in person. Uh, Everyone else was watching from home. So I think we've got some unique perspectives to share here. So if you guys don't mind, uh, I'd like to start with what it was like being there. 
this one was probably the most interesting mission that I've ever covered in person for Talking Space. Uh, it seemed like there was zero hype or hoopla about it leading up to the mission. I remember talking with a few people a week or two out saying, I've really heard nothing about the mission. There's no real excitement, no people talking all about it. I know people that live on the Space Coast that haven't even thought about where they were going to go view the launch three or four days before, which normally for a mission with people, you do. You plan much, much in advance. And it just felt like there was nothing to it. You know, there was the Netflix special, there was the Time Magazine cover, but that was really it. Then, all of a sudden, a day or two before, it blew up everywhere. Every U.S. major TV network had someone down at Cape Canaveral. Every website you could think of was posting about it, space-related or not. It just came up out of nowhere, and it it surprised me, honestly. So, then, jumping ahead a little bit to actually being at the Cape on launch day. Um, the atmosphere felt different from any other mission I've been to. I mean, a lot of the most recent missions have kind of just felt, you know, routine, for lack of a better word. Uh, for STS-135, the last shuttle mission, there was that, you know, feeling in the air of, this is it, this is the end of an era. This, you know, we're saying goodbye to the shuttle and all the history behind it. This one had a kind of similar feeling. And I know you're going to think, oh, it probably felt like the start of a brand new era of spaceflight for the ordinary person. It didn't necessarily feel like that, but it did have the feeling of, these are not astronauts on board. These are, for the most part, ordinary people. Uh, the number of people that I spoke to that were there who, you know, normally for a mission, it's, oh, I've met that astronaut before. They were very nice. This one, it was personal anecdotes with pretty much every member of the crew, especially, you know, Dr. Cyan Proctor, who's been a major player in the space geek community, essentially. Uh, besides her fantastic work, she's been out there dressed up as a chef at Yuri's Night and stories from people just saying what fun they've had with her at events. And you go, you know, these aren't astronauts. They're actually people. And it kind of felt that different feeling in the air. So when it actually went off, it wasn't, okay, there's more people in space. It was, okay, there's real people in space. Now, again, it does bring up the question of, does it make it feel like we are at the start of a new era in space travel? And I, I don't know if it felt that way, but what I'm going to do here is I'm going to play the launch audio. And you can kind of hear my reaction. You can hear a little bit of the crowd reaction. And judge for yourself from that. And then I'm going to open it up to the rest of the gang. So crank up your speakers as always. If you're in the car, roll down the windows and uh, get ready for liftoff.
So you've heard the launch audio. You've heard my reaction. I'm interested in what all of you guys think. What was your reaction to the Inspiration4 mission, your feeling, and what you guys got from both watching it yourselves and from following along with the communities on Twitter and on the internet? I'll start off just to get the negative out of the way first. I didn't watch it. I didn't read about it. I don't really care about it. Do you mind if I ask why? It just didn't interest me. It's just another space launch. It's another uh, SpaceX launch. It's another crew launch. And big deal. I I mean, I can't really uh, put any more spin on it other than that it did not interest me particularly. Yeah, it's historic, but every launch is historic. I mean, we can make a mountain out of a molehill every time something happens with spaceflight. So do you think we're at a point now where this spaceflight is becoming routine again? Oh, sure. It's routine till somebody dies, and then we'll start paying attention to it. That's what worries me about it, yeah. It's starting, it is getting to feel a little bit like shuttle era all over again, or the end of the Apollo program all over again with, uh, it's more people in space. Okay, cool. I sometimes have that same worry when space, you know, when launch becomes routine, people become complacent. When people become complacent, that's when, that's when accidents can happen. That's one of the concerns here, but my thought with this one again is it seemed a little different from the others just because of who was on board. I mean, the big thing of raising all the money for St. Jude, which is, I think, fantastic. It's a great charity. I really support what they did there. And the fact that it's, you know, normal, quote unquote, people, or at least I would say three of the four people on board are normal people. You know, when I first heard of this and being on Twitter, following a bunch of space people, being followed by space people, of course, you saw everyone throwing their hat in the ring. And, and we talked about this on Talking Space as well. And I was just like, ugh, a contest to go to space, really. And I was like, there is nobody that I'm going to support for this. Like, I don't want like this is not my idea of like how you should encourage people to go to space. But then when I saw side Dr. Proctor throw her hat in the ring, I was like, OK, well, Here's one person I can support in this. And so I was like, I will retweet this one person. And um, I was uh, just really thrilled and excited for her um, to see that she was going to space. And I, and I do think, um, personally for me, that was the really rewarding part, to see someone who has been part of our community, who has been such an advocate for learning, um, and just someone who's like genuinely who she is, that was really that was really fantastic to see. So I I really enjoyed that. Um, I have not enjoyed how closed the access to this has been. That there wasn't more live coverage, and I and I get that. I'm sure that you know somebody is making a ton of money off the Netflix deal, um, and and that does give them an opportunity to control the narrative and how this is how this is perceived. But I would have enjoyed it a lot more had we had more access during the actual mission to how everyone was experiencing them. Because now that it's over and now that the bulk of that experience is going to come through um, a Netflix show, that is certainly just going to mediate the way that anyone experiences because they're going to tell a story. Which, you know, is fine. There, there's lots of arguments for that. But I have to say, of, of everything that I've seen covering the mission, like my favorite is watching them open 
uh, dragon's little mini cupola for the first time, and and they had the spe- the the theme from uh, Space Odyssey 2001 playing, and I was like, this is just such a great moment because it's just so nerdy and geeky and real, and it's you know people going to space and just having that like childlike joy of doing something amazing. So that for me was really cool, um, but you know, billionaires in space making it happen. Uh, it still is, you know, and again, I said this on Talking Space before, it still, uh, you know, restricts that access to to a certain subset of people able to do a certain set of things. And it's certainly not opening space up for, for any new groups. Jared Eisenman did address that on Twitter and said that part of the lack of access had to do uh, with having to share the TDRS, the tracking data relay satellite network and getting time on it so that they could do large bandwidth downlinks. Take that as you will, but that was what Jared Isaacman did say about it. So I will just leave oh, that. There. I hadn't seen that on Twitter. Thanks for, thanks for, for sharing. Yes. Go ahead, Mark. My uh, uneducated thought on what you just said, Sawyer, is that somebody's got to pay for the data connection. So uh, that's probably a lot more to it than that. From what you just said, there certainly is. And I just wanted to say that, you know, we live in a world where there are people who are still hesitant, who are nervous, afraid to fly. And anybody that's willing to board a rocket and go fly, to me, it's it's an admirable thing. It takes a lot of, uh, a lot of guts and a lot of uh, determination to do that. And I certainly should not make less of anybody doing that just... Reflecting on it being routine, I guess, was where I was coming from. But congratulations to those who did, who those who flew. And uh, although it's kind of a shame, if they had not flown, there would have been even more money that could have gone to St. Jude. That's a really interesting take on it, actually. I I haven't thought about it that way. Yeah, Sawyer, just a couple of things. Um, and, uh, and again, apologies for the voice here, everybody. Um. One thing during the coverage that I sat down and I thought about was, I wonder what Danny Thomas would have thought about this. He was the the he was the entertainer basically who started St. Jude's Hospital. He had vowed early in his career if he made it big, he was going to go ahead and help children in some way, shape, or form. And he obviously did make it big in, in, in the entertainment business. Everybody at that during that period where he was, you know, active, uh, knew him. And uh um he decided to to share the wealth and, and establish the uh the Saint Jude's uh hospital, Saint Jude being the uh the patron saint of lost causes. And uh, uh, I, I often wondered what he would have thought about all of this as I was, as I was sitting, sitting there watching the coverage. I knew NASA was, um, you know, donating the, uh, well, at least going to go ahead and use TDRS to, for tracking purposes. And I would figure that that was in probably the reason why um, there wasn't a lot of downlink available because well you know let's face it this was not a nasa mission um nasa would go ahead and 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 give you the uh um uh the uh uh you know the ability to track the spacecraft and make sure it was healthy and all that but would it go ahead and 
and open up the door for, you know, constant downlink and things like that, like they would a regular NASA mission? The answer was probably no. But again, the intriguing thought was here, was this going to open up the door to, you know, John and Joanne Q public? Uh, the answer is definitely not. Um, I, I believe Sawyer and, and, and you could correct me or anybody else on the panel could correct me here. I believe the usual price for one of those seats is $55 million. I saw that estimate as well, Gene. Yeah, thank you um, for the confirmation on that. I think that's what, what SpaceX usually charges NASA. Um, and now, it, there was a, a question during one of the briefings uh, what the price tag really was, and I believe Benji Reed of SpaceX basically declined to answer that, basically saying that it was you know, it was, you know, between Isaacsman and, and SpaceX as far as what the actual price of, of, the, of the mission was. But, um, you know, to say this is, this is going to open up space to the, to, uh, to, um, you know, you, me, um, and anybody listening out there is just, <laughs> it, it is absurd. Um, it, it's still, you know, the uh, the price of the ticket, and I've heard comments by some saying, "Well, that's the way it always starts." You know, I mean, look at flat panel televisions; they were ten thousand dollars in nineteen, you know, in the in the early nineteen nineties, but now they're almost impulse items at at stores. Um, I said, "Yeah, that's the way consumerism kind of works," but. Is there going to be that kind of clamoring for, you know, for for that kind of service? Um, and I don't think there is, to be quite honest. I don't think the market for space tourism is there. I think you I think you have a good point there, Gene, that, um, you know, in order for for the price of something to come down so drastically, there has to be strong demand and. I think, especially those of us who are sort of like in space all the time or space nerds, we tend to overestimate how much the public actually cares about space, which, as I know through my own research, is quite a low number. You know, that's not a, there's not a huge issue public for space. Something else that I um, wanted to point out before we move on from Inspiration 4 is I did see, and I really wish I could, I could remember who said it. I think it was Eric Berger, but I cannot Berger, sorry. I cannot remember if it was, but this point that this mission, um, you know, would never have happened if NASA hadn't stepped in and basically saved SpaceX with funding. Um, so again, this is just another point that I know that I do this probably every show, so perhaps our listeners are tired of it, just to, to step in and, and say that um, space is taxpayer funded, even when it's private companies. Um you know, SpaceX would not exist in the way it does now if not for the the significant investment of the U.S. taxpayer. And so, you know, even watching a private mission funded by a billionaire, um, who again benefits a lot from the U.S. taxpayer, but that's an entirely other conversation. Um, but you know, so even when a billionaire is paying for a flight from 
uh, a private company, that private company is existing because of the investment made by the U.S. government through the use of U.S. taxpayer dollars. So I just like to point that out, and I thought that was a really good uh, a tweet that came out. And like again, I think it was Eric who said that, and it was I saw that, and I was like, yes, thank you. That is that is exactly right. Yeah, and and to just you know fill in what I was what I was getting at too. Everybody tries to compare this with the start of aviation and so on. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, but um, with aviation, we had actual places to go. There were business deals to close elsewhere, and there were relatives to see. There were places to explore in and around the world. Everybody wanted to go to Rome, to Italy, and all of these other tourist attractions. And now with aviation it was it was possible to get there within you know within a blink of an eye almost and everybody wanted to, to wanted to do it so the prices started you know admittedly they were kind of high when they first started but as people were boarding aircraft and more and more people were demanding to go from point a to point b quicker because again i will say there were relatives to visit, business deals to close, and tourist attractions to visit. Um, it, people went to and fro and so on. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, my Aunt Tilly doesn't live 250 miles up. So, again, I'm going to say, where's the demand? The only way you're really going to get the price down is to start getting industry up there. And I, I just don't see space tourism being key in that mix just yet. I have heard, and I cannot confirm this, but I have heard that uh, there has been an increase in interest in buying private SpaceX Dragon flights. Whether that's actually going to happen, I don't know. Again, you're talking over $200,000 for, or to, uh, you're talking over $200 million for the capsule with all the seats on board. Benji Reed basically said that during a post land, during a post splashdown um, event where he said his office, the phone was basically ringing off the hook. I have a, I, I, I'm not sure that that was really the case or not, that the phone was ringing off the hook. But um, um, I will say, you know, and, and it sounds like I'm, 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 I'm being a Donald Downer here, but I will say that, that because of this flight and because of what Branson and Bezos have done, it has opened up the door to more individuals that want to conduct research, legitimate research in the space environment. Um, if you are a you know a, a company or a, um, a a university or something like that, and you have the wherewithal to go ahead and pay that kind of money to have a individual fly a research package on a suborbital or an orbital mission, 
you know, go for it. I mean, you know, there are countries now that can put astronauts on board a spacecraft if they so wish because of all of this and conduct legitimate research during those missions. So, um, and, and that's, uh, and we'll probably get into this a little later during the program, but that's what folks like, like Axum and um, uh, Sierra Nevada want to do too. They want to, you know, start their own private space stations to allow that kind of opportunity. So what we're going to see in the future is that's what's going to drive, um, you know, the low earth orbit industry. It's, it's not going to be space tourism yet, gang. That, you know, we're, 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 we're a long ways off from the expanse. That's all I'm going to say. Um, you know, as far as the, uh, that television series is concerned, we're not there yet. And I don't think we're going to see something like that in, I don't know, I, at least another 30, 35, 40 years. I would agree with that. Like you said, you know, it's very different from just hopping on board an airplane and flying somewhere. We're not anywhere close to that point yet, but I guess it's a start. It's nice that we're finally getting it off the ground. I mean, in the beginning, air travel was only for the rich and elite as well, and now has made it so that most people can fly. I, Like you said, I think we're still a ways away off from that. And then you also have now the difference of, are we talking suborbital, such as a Branson or a Bezos, where there is still questions about which technically fits the definition of going into space, and then missions like this, where they have gone higher than any mission since the Apollo program. Mm. So. Yeah, that What's was... The, mm. Not really. I thought that um, STS, one of the shuttle missions actually flew higher. From my understanding, it was not, since the highest that the shuttle ever flew was during the Hubble servicing missions, and this was slightly above Hubble. I think there was, I think if you check your record book, Sawyer, and I think somebody, um, I, I think it was the folks at Space Flight Now that kind of killed that. Um, I believe they mentioned that STS-89 or 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 one of the or one of the uh, the the other um, Hubble servicing missions flew actually higher than the Inspiration Four mission. You are correct. STS one hundred three. My apologies. In nineteen ninety nine, which was one of the Hubble servicing missions. Right. So I, I just want to put that out there. So the the folks at uh, at Spaceflight now kind of kind of debunked that, and and I because I remember. Um, saying, is that really the case? Because something bothered me about that about, about that quote. And I noticed, too, that SpaceX PAO stopped saying that after um, after uh, uh, the folks over at uh, Space Flight Now put that out there. So uh, just just uh, I, I just want to go ahead and kind of kind of set that right. And I actually got an earful from a lot of people over that and um my thought was well it, that's the way it was you know so here's the official designation it was 
the fifth highest Earth orbiting human space flight that did not go to the moon. Right. Exactly. Oh, well, all right. Yeah. I mean, but I, I just want to put that out there that, you know, every, every, they, they were first initially bragging, this is the highest we've gone since Apollo. And I'm like, eh, that's not exactly true. Well, let's, let's also not forget about uh, secret Department of Defense missions that we know nothing about. Very true. There were a lot of those in the uh, 80s and into the 90s that were DOD shuttle flights that are still classified to this day, including their orbital parameters. And this was well before the days of now where people are sharing on the internet all of their spottings and are able to come up with the orbital path of the X-37B three days after launch when it's supposed to be entirely classified. So there is that to consider. Before we leave Inspiration4, I will say this. The one good thing that came out of this is that a lot of people who didn't know about the St. Jude's and what it does do now. So if there is a silver lining, you know, despite all of the the hemming and hawing, if you want to go ahead and, and talk about the real good that happened here, is that the hospital now and and its systems have you know a bit of a spotlight now and people know about the good that that they do and what a what an incredible charity it really really is um uh, so if if anything good came out of it um it was probably that I agree. Whatever you think of the Inspiration4 mission itself, St. Jude is a fantastic charity. And uh, if nothing else, I am glad that they got the attention and about $240 million raised so far from this mission alone. I know, as Mark pointed out, it could have been more if they just donated that money directly, but it's also now raising awareness of the charity around the globe. So they do fantastic work. They are a great charity. And if you are able to they are definitely worth supporting, despite what, however you feel about the Inspiration4 mission. Um, also, I was doing some Googling because I was interested. Gemini 11 was actually the highest orbital flight ever. How high was that? 644 miles. Wow. So, which... That was September of 1966, I believe. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I didn't look at the actual data. I was just, you know, doing some Googling. So I was like, hmm, I want to see that. Uh, yep, you were correct. September 1966, September 12th to 15th. Yeah, and just uh, the official designation that I'm seeing here is 850 miles or 1,368 kilometers for ah. Gemini 11. For comparison, uh, the highest point of apogee for Inspiration 4 uh, was... 585 kilometers that's 364 miles <laughs> yep that's your fun fact with cat for today exactly fun facts with cat cat gets the gold star for that one that's for darn sure but uh um but one more point i i do have to make though the public right now has the perception that space is strictly for billionaires i mean I don't know about you guys, but I think that's a that that's a perception that needs to just you know die, um, because it really isn't. Uh, 
and, and you know we we've we've gone on and on here on this program several on several occasions to talk about what um what spaceflight does and and what it brings back down to earth uh so uh, again that perception that space is strictly for the billionaires uh especially since um as uh, uh Eric Berger had had indicated if it weren't for NASA SpaceX wouldn't exist so um yeah i i, I just want to put that out there that 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 kind of kind of thinking needs needs to go away and go away quickly I'm not sure that it will, but I think that we can agree that uh, that we know that space is something that touches everyone's life and is for everyone. And hopefully space travel will also be seen as that one day. That is very true. I, I hope so as well. But uh, admittedly, I don't think that's going to happen until some of these missions, which sometimes can be called more stunts than missions, uh, either stop or become more regular, like airline travel that eventually it opens up to more people because now we have two more private missions that are actually bound for the international space station uh first uh axiom space announced that they are now targeting february 21st for the axiom one mission to the international space station which kathy leader said would be the first private astronaut mission to the laboratory with axiom space uh, and in addition to that mission, there is also a Russian mission that is now scheduled to go up to the International Space Station with the goal of shooting a Russian movie up there. And one of the interesting things about that Russian mission is that it is having actual impact on day-to-day -day operations aboard the space station, in particular with the launch of the Nauka module, which we have... Uh, has been in the process for years, and you may recall docked with the International Space Station and then started firing its thrusters, uh, spinning the station end over end multiple times before they finally brought it under control, leading to the first of many future delays to the OFT-2 mission for Boeing. Uh, but we are now hearing that there's also a problem as they work on reinstalling properly the module. Uh, there are problems with a European Space Agency robotic arm that is attached to said module. Uh, and we are hearing that there's a possibility that some of the repairs to that may have to be delayed because of this upcoming uh, movie mission, so to speak. It's no, po it's no possibility, Sawyer. They've, they've already said that I believe Roscosmos announced that the, the repairs will need to be delayed uh, to accommodate the movie schedule. Um, I find that a little, I don't know, absurd um, that a critical piece of hardware that, you know, another country is responsible for um, that, that you've, you've included on this, on this vehicle in good faith um, it, it will not be in tip-top shape until after these these folks are are done. You know, shooting a movie seriously. I read an interesting article about this. Um, just talking about 
this from several different angles, not just sort of an angle that we may be concerned with from a, a policy or, or space technology angle, but whether or not there would be a consumer appetite to see movies actually filmed in space versus special effects, um, to see if the, the reality of, um, of camera angles and everything, because as you all know, the space station isn't that big. And, and typically when they film a movie, which you may or may not know, um, the scale is, is much different in order to make things seem bigger. Um, and this isn't the only movie. There's two other movies and works, a Japanese movie as well as a Tom Cruise movie and works to, to shoot on the space station. And, you know, I'm sort of of two minds of this, of course, having critical, uh, work delayed is it's not ideal but also for this space station to continue to function and exist beyond uh nasa and other partners commitments to funding it it does have to become a commercially viable um enterprise and so this may be one way that 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 commercial opportunity is opening up of course you know i think in an ideal world everyone's like oh it would be great if it was open commercially to people doing research but, um, you know, there's, there's people with money to burn on things like this, and, and it can be a significant investment towards the operating cost of the station. So that's just my two cents on it. Again, one of the, the operational aspects, too, was somebody was trying to explain to me earlier um, on Twitter that the Soyuz that's up there now has to be refreshed. So they are base i i guess they're, they're sending the new soyuz up there with this crew and I, I i guess the game plan is to take the old one back and leave the fresh one up there um i i'm i i don't know if that's the case or not um but but somebody was trying to tell me that the soyuz up there needs to be refreshed because we've got um a couple of people up there that are going to be staying there for about here and they want to make sure that they, they've got a ship that, that is able to come down. And I'm like, well, okay, fine. But does it really have to interfere with, with, with you know, with operations? I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I understand where, where, where Kat is coming from and I, I get it. But with respect to, you've got research going on that companies are paying for on the destiny module and so on. And, I you know that 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 income is there probably, but that income is not as unrestricted as income for shooting a movie, um, in that sort of terms. Because obviously, you know, their company's paying to do research, but that research money is pay it's is not profit. If that makes sense, you know, you're not gonna at least in the current model of ISS, you know, you're paying for the time and you're paying for. Um, for other for the support for that research you're not necessarily just putting money into coffers um, i'm quite sure that that um the cost of filming a movie or sending as uh, same thing with cost of space tourism like this isn't the first time the iss has ho hosted a space tourist you know is it's higher than the cost of sending an astronaut because they're going to be charged a premium rate i guess for me i'm personally just neutral to this um if the it you know it's unfortunate that it's delaying work but if it was truly critical work it probably wouldn't be delayed um, because you just can't delay truly critical work um, and 
you know, you don't know what sort of conversations have gone on behind closed doors between the customer or the, um, uh, the Nuco module. So I don't know for me, I'm just personally neutral to this. I'm, I will be interested to see if it really looks, you know, if the filming is cooler than special effects. And so does this become a viable, uh, pathway for, um, you know, for sort of a commercial engagement. Um, I don't know. Interesting to see. Well, I, 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 I guess that the interesting part of that would be, yeah, to see if they're actually able to do it. That's one. Um, and to see if it actually, you know, if, if it's, if it's cinematic quality and so on. Um, I do know that, um, Sierra Nevada in their uh, their proposed space station, they've actually even are thinking about shooting movies in space, and they will. I think think somebody during one of their their press conferences indicated they're going to have a module dedicated just for for that purpose to kind of keep you know to kind of keep the warring parties separate, if you will. Um. But uh, it it will it it's still I, I don't know I'm I'm thinking yeah it may not seem critical right now but you never know I mean I mean I guess I just for me it's like if if we just had this chat about how you know space travel isn't going to come down in the cost of flat screen TVs you know how do we how do we hope how do you get the consumer interest in space travel to make it something that will be affordable for, you know, a normal person one day? Well, you know, this is one of those things you have to do. So for me, it's, I, I sort of guess we can't, we can't complain on one hand and then just be annoyed on the other. Um, you sort of have to say if, if you want space travel to be, to become something ordinary, that's accessible for ordinary people that aren't sponsored by billionaires, then this is the sort of thing that has to start happening. Yeah, I agree, but I'm 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 still kind of worried about uh, that that robotic arm a little bit because I, I really kind of kind of wish I could understand a little bit more what the issue is, and that's probably where where I'm a little in the dark. And and if I were if if I understood what what the configuration was and and so on, I would probably be leaning more toward your side or 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 whatever. It, it's just I'm I'm they're hosting somebody else's equipment on their module and but yet this is a priority that's what i don't understand um i i guess really what's the priority is the priority to go ahead and make sure another country's item is is okay or is the priority to to a film company and and that's what i mean this is russia and the film company is russian so yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think you can draw a couple of conclusions. From yeah, that. exactly. But it, it, it's just I kind of wonder where, you know, I I just would just would like to know what that the 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 genuine status of that arm is. Is it something that that is critical or or what? But um, if if it weren't for that 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 ailing piece of equipment, I would probably say you know, hey, go for it. But um. I, my thought is to to get that square that problem squared away for first, and then go ahead and and tell the film company to do their worst. Uh, that that's 
you know, that, that, that's, that's all I'm saying. All, honestly, really valid points with that. It, it is still an operational space station regardless. So whether that means operating as a movie studio as well is probably the part that's up for debate, but it, it is operational. So while we're kind of discussing this whole uh, privatization of everything here, uh, let's kind of shift a little bit with the private-public joining here and go to uh, the uh, Human Landing System, HLS. Uh, Right now, we are currently in a bit of a delay as we have an ongoing lawsuit, right, Gene? Yeah, that unfortunately is the case, Sawyer. Um, it the whole human landing system controversy is just is just crazy. Um, okay, first we had had the actual selection uh, a while back of three companies. Um, then NASA tried to whittle it down to two. However. They didn't even have the money initially to have it whittled down to one at the time of the the selection. Um, this was um, during the uh, the transitional period um, between between administrations as well, and it was decided that maybe it will just go with a sole provider, and they decided to go with the. Um, with the SpaceX uh, selection. And, uh, well, um, it didn't quite work out the way... Um, it, it, the, 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 it, there was enough controversy around that, around that decision to make, make it a single provider that uh, the other two had... Uh, both Dianetics and Blue Origin, or AKA the the national team, which was actually Blue Origin, um, Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, uh, plus Draper Labs, uh, had had gone ahead and, and basically disputed the decision at first, and uh, they said, you know, NASA basically said said after so the whole thing got basically sent to the general accounting office, and the general accounting office ruled in favor of the decision, and um, Blue Origin not wanting to uh, uh, take no for an answer is in the process now of suing the National Aeronautics and Space Administration over the decision. Um, it's, uh, and, and that also has kind of thrown, uh, the unpopular light on, on the company. Um, to me, in, in, in my personal opinion, it's, it's probably no different than what SpaceX itself did to the U S air force early, early on around the, uh, I think it might've been the twenty. 14, 2015 timeframe when it was trying to pry open um, uh, SpaceX Air Force launches uh, and and get onto their um, uh, onto their docket ahead of uh, United Launch Alliance. 
and they were trying to essentially break a contract that ULA, ULA had with the Air Force. So, um, but here we are, and that has basically held up work, essentially, on the human landing system. Now, you know, it, it, it's debatable on, on, on if this is really, really the way to go here. Personally, I can understand, in a way, where Blue Origin's coming from, um, where you had two providers, basically, to go ahead and, and, and have them get their vehicle out. It's proven itself during the commercial cargo program, where you had both... Um, Orbital Sciences, then Orbital ATK, now it's basically Northrop Grumman, um, and SpaceX sending cargo to the International Space Station because both of those providers kind of stumbled almost within months of each other. And one was able to go ahead and work the system and, and get their craft on another another launch vehicle to get cargo to the International Space Station while the other kind of sorted its problems out as well. And lo and behold, you know, it, it just basically showed the wisdom of, of having two providers. I think, too, in the commercial crew standpoint, again, they are showing the wisdom of having two providers. One provider has kind of stumbled a little bit, where and and that's Boeing. They're the the Starliner is going through some growing pains right now, um, with uh, some bulky valves. Uh, so they have to go ahead and 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 punt and take a look at that, which has kind of set them back a little bit. But they'll they'll get those they'll get that straightened out, and OFT two will go ahead and fly again. And the the successful Crew Dragon with SpaceX. Um, however, uh, and so so again, that's where Bezos is coming from. He's saying, why don't we have the, these two kind of providers? And by the way, there's no guarantee that his company would have been selected as the second one. Um, but again, this is kind of slowing up the works. Um, there was a press conference earlier, uh, a couple of weeks ago where, um, uh, administrator Nelson was being asked about that. And he basically said, well, right. Is 2024 still feasible as far as a landing on, on, on the moon? And Nelson was saying, well, we still have to get through the legal aspects of, you know, th this challenge that Blue Origin has put forward. So that's kind of slowing the gears up. And uh, is 2024 still feasible? You know, we'll just have I to mean, see. let's be real. Did any of us think 2024 was feasible? You know, my personal opinion on that is probably not right now. Since all work on the HLS has kind of stopped. Well, I just have to say, I mean, let's let <laughs> did any of us actually think 2024 was reasonable reasonable when it was announced? I mean, <laughs> we weren't all that sure, but 
And neither did Congress. I mean, multiple times people who were within Congress hearing about this were said that this wasn't feasible when the Trump administration said it. So, I mean, I, I do think that sort of this this new narrative of like, oh, it's delaying the 2024 is, is a bit of a false cry because at the time that this this goal was set, there was skeptical, there was a, a large amount of skepticism that this would meet be met. Not, you know, not just from us, but from, you know, appropriators, from from people setting the budget, from policy experts. You know, 2024 is was extremely ambitious and, and highly unlikely. And, and Congress, when, when they appropriated, you know, this budget, you know, many of the people said that, you know, we don't think that this is a realistic budget or a realistic time frame. So, um, and the current stay is like a voluntary stay until the lawsuit wraps up because they've all agreed to an expedited schedule. So we'll know in, in just over a month, the, the outcome of this. So I think, you know, of course, a two, three month delay um, can be significant in programs. We've seen it, seen it, you know, small delays set programs back years. But I also do not think that this was ever going to land in 2024, to be perfectly honest. I think that that was an unrealistic time frame when it was announced, and it's still an unrealistic time frame. I'm going to throw one thing out there. Um, I, I, we knew that 2024 was notional. Even um, Kathy Leaders, when she was asked, was basically said, um, you know, well, you know, is, is 2024 feasible? Well, you know, you got to at least try. You can't just throw your hands up and, and say, you know, no. No, and I agree, but I'm just saying that everyone's using this as sort of like a big, like, drama moment. And to me, it's just not <clears throat> that this is that, oh, no, that now because of this one thing, we're not going to be able to launch in 2024. I mean, everything would have had to go perfectly for us to land humans in 2024, even just to land a lander. And that's just unrealistic in space. To um, uh, bring it a little f further in, I, I, you, know, you were talking about Congress and, and the Congress critters and so on. I still remember um, um, uh, who, uh, who was it from New York? Jose Seriano, who's no longer in in Congress. He's he's since retired. Um, basically saying, "Well, why twenty twenty four? Can't we just even shoot for you know twenty twenty eight? And well, I can tell you why twenty twenty four because the Trump administration wanted to its second term and wanted to have a big achievement in the second term. I mean. So I just, this is something that I touched on in my dissertation. So it went quite into the political side of it. And I just, for me, uh, the focus on 2024 is this sort of big narrative um, tool. It's just a little, it, it's just that, it's just narrative. Because as I said, for that to have happened, everything would have to go perfectly. And we just know the development of new launch vehicles and the development of new landers, things don't go perfectly. So, I mean, I, shoot, I, I could, I could get into the development of the XEMU too, which isn't going to be ready until 2025. So it was under current schedule, but I'm, no, I'm just saying that like, I don't know. I, well, you know, maybe a bit of a raised eyebrow for Blue Origin to go ahead with it with a lawsuit when the GAA the GAO um 
had made its ruling, you know, raises a few eyebrows, but lawsuits, I mean, as even you said, Jean, like this is to me, I'm, I'm just, I hope that they win their lawsuit because it would be great to be able to see two providers that have to be done. I'm, you know, as you said, I'm all for redundancy. So, um, and I mean, the, the SpaceX being chosen, um, and chosen alone was a bit of a surprise because there are certainly indications that uh, that Blue Origin was further along in its in its development and, and had already received funding. But you know, I I would like to see both companies developing landers with support um, from the federal government. I think that would be the best outcome for the taxpayer for all the reasons that you listed earlier. Yeah, I mean the the other thing too is. Um... I don't know whether whether or not this could be really considered a consolation prize, but if I recall exactly, um, just a few weeks ago, NASA announced that they were awarding um, a, uh, a a contract to again Dianetics, the um, the quote national team, which included Blue Origin. Uh, Lockheed Martin, Draper Labs, and uh, Northrop Grumman, and uh, to to go ahead and and start developing their lander. I mean, grant you, it was a kind of a a paltry seed money kind of thing. So you know, they the apparently NASA does have an interest in you know Dianetics and quote the national team continuing their their the research on um on and the feasibility of getting their landers to the lunar surface but uh they're saying that that for the first attempt they want to want to give the SpaceX lander a shot um I'm not going to go into even the engineering feasibilities of of what SpaceX has proposed or not or if they could get it ready you know, in in a reasonable time frame, um, but I, I do agree with the the assertion that redundancy is critical, and that I think is what Blue Origin is trying to go ahead and 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 say. Look, you know, you guys have said redundancy is absolutely critical in this program. We're trying to offer that kind of redundancy, but you're not allowing us to do that and and that they feel is in the best interest of the of the country but it's also i guess in the best interest of blue origin too um you know to 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 make sure that they still have this because i i mean we we could we could debate this until we're kind of blue in the face but it 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 looked to me too that bezos is trying to really really invigorate blue origin again um, because he's he's kind of left it alone for a while, and and now that he's he's kind of turned over Amazon to a you know a, you know operational he's out of the operational data day control there he's diving more into Blue Origin and trying to get right that ship too because there are other issues going on there are other problems behind the scenes and I'm sure he's trying to solve right now. I agree, and you know he's also going after 
Um, just a quick mention, because I know we should move on to the next topic, but, you know, he's certainly doing his best to go to play this on multiple fronts, not just in court, but also in the court of public opinion with all their PR campaign, anti-SpaceX, even some anti-NASA sort of PR campaign, and then just recently announcing that they're going to take, you know, Captain Kirk to space. They're certainly uh, building a, a public profile to see if that can help them out at all. Yeah, I agree. But some of that, I think, has is, is kind of backfired. We'll just have to see how that goes. But I, I do know, at least in watching watching what I've seen seen on the back and forth on, on, inf- on the infamous space Twitter feeds, that um, some of that has indeed backfired. It's, it's going to be very interesting to see how this goes down. And like you said, at least we'll know relatively soon. So hopefully in the next episode, we can go over all of this and see where we end up. I believe, Sawyer, the, the decision's going to be rendered um, first week in November, well, I heard. So we'll... They agreed to wrap up by November 1st. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Kat. I knew it was somewhere around there. Um, so we will we'll be watching this closely. Um, and uh, uh, we'll see how things go, but um, I think the sooner we get on with with this whole thing, the better. Um, I, I'd, I'd really like to get us you know, back to the moon and back to the moon soonest. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the end goal here is 2024 would have been fantastic if we can still do it. That's still fantastic. The sooner we get humans back on the moon, the better. And I know now part of that is also tied in as NASA is now changing up uh, its organization uh, with some of its Human Exploration and Operations Missions Directorate. That was the old name. Now they are splitting it up into two with the new Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate and the Space Operations Mission Directorate. Now I know this drew a lot of uh, controversy and concern on Twitter, but Gene, I know you can help us break down at least what that means. Yes, yeah, or thanks. Um the the first group i believe there was a there was a press conference earlier um this week that announced all of that and there was a there was a ton of controversy um not just on 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 twitter but also in in the space media about it uh they brought back jim free uh from the private sector he was the former center director at NASA Glenn, and I think he also served as an associate administrator at NASA for a while, um, to lead the new development program aspect of this. Now, when we're talking about development program, we're talking about getting, you know, key technologies like SLS, like Orion, um, and any other follow-up technologies that are going to be required for the lunar surface um, up going and in the pipeline and start moving along. Um, Kathy Leaders is staying on, and um, this was in in Bill Nelson's eyes a no brainer to have her shift over to the operations aspect because she has has uh, provided incredible leadership in in getting you know the commercial crew. Uh, stuff together. She has provided incredible leadership on on ISS, and she's in 
provided an incredible le- leadership too in supervising the the ground support um, operations at at the Kennedy Space Center to make sure that SLS and Orion are are well supported over there. Um, in some eyes, this this looked like a demotion for Kathy, and that you know she couldn't handle it. And Jim Free had to bring was brought in to deal with it. And in a in, in a few media outlets, I'm not going to mention who, but if if you're if you've been savvy enough out there and paying attention, you kind of understand who they were. And if you actually sat and listened to the uh, the audio, and it's out there on on YouTube, um, on on who. Uh, was asking what questions you can kind of ascertain what where they were going and where they were coming from, but I don't see it as a demotion for Kathy at all because eventually she's going to have to go ahead and take over those systems that are coming out of Jim Free's office. She's eventually going to have to take over the operational aspects of SLS. She's eventually going to have to take over the operational aspects of the Orion spacecraft. Those are going to be in the pipeline. They're going to be out of development and in her hands and her responsibility. So I I didn't see this as a demotion at all. Her hands are kind of full right now because of the demands of the commercial crew program and the ISS. And those are, are, are expanding exponentially too, as We've we've discussed here. There've been you know space tourists going up up there and so on, but there's also been the, the the crew aspects. And as far as I know, you know Joel Montalbano is still reporting to Kathy in this whole mix. So nothing's really changed in that. In that now you have somebody that's dedicated to bringing technologies online that are going to be required. To going for the moon, going to the moon, and I'm and and by that I'm not only talking about SLS and Orion, but also I'm talking about the other technologies that we're going to need to to stay there, to to work on the moon, to 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 power our our explorations and so on. Um, and to me, it just seemed to be really, really a a. a big bite for some one person to just to handle. So I think the decision was wise. I think it was, was, was a, was a good way to compartmentalize things. And this was not a demotion on Kathy, Kathy leaders part at all. This was, was more of really, really a, a, a confident you know, saying, Hey, you've got, you've got the, the reins you've, you've demonstrated, your your core competencies, we're going to let you run with it, and not only are we going to let you run with it, we're going to let you run with the as- the operational aspects of getting to the moon. So to me, this wasn't a demotion. This was this was, you know, full steam ahead. The, the, these two are going to be working together, and a lot of the, and I believe too, this was a um, a decision. I think Bill Nelson himself said this during the press conference. Um. This was a decision that was kind of thrown out there by the NASA landing team. Um, 
when uh, the during the transition to the Biden administration, and they so this had been in the pipeline for a very long time. That this kind of decision they had been debating and working with this kind of decision for a very very long time, and until finally they agreed with the logic and decided to implement it. If I can give a bit of a tip of the hat too to Marcia Smith over at Space Policy Online. She actually, you know, asked the question during during the press conference. She noticed that, that that this was basically the way it was at one point during shuttle. So she was she was basically saying, you know, it in her eyes, this was going back to the way it was, you know, some some ten ten years ago. So it it wasn't really. Um, a big a big deal in my eyes. I thought it was probably, you know, it, it kind of takes some of the load off off Kathy a little bit so she can concentrate on 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 core competent you know her core competencies and getting things going and having the additional help that Jim Free would would be able to give her. I have to, you know, Gene, I have to agree with you. Um, I think maybe the optics of this could have been managed better because there certainly were some some optics issues in the way that this was announced. But I think ultimately it's a it's a good decision because, you know, we've all seen, you know, the tragedies that can happen when when there's not enough focus paid and when, as you said, this was you know a huge portfolio to be managing, um, you know, just by by having that sort of different competing responsibilities, you're going to be pulled from one into the other and and something's going to suffer. So I think that this is a smart thing. I think it does allow the agency to make better use of its resources in order to ensure that all programs, especially those programs involving human spaceflight, are run as efficiently and safely as possible. So I, I tend to think, like I know that there, there's been some controversy in this, but I, I think it was a good idea from an organizational standpoint. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sure that nothing s- slips through the cracks from a safety standpoint. And I, I, you know, I'll, I'll welcome, you know, Jim free back to the organization and I'm sure he's going to be a, a critical, uh, a critical piece of the puzzle going forward in, in getting us, you know, getting us over to the moon and onto Mars. Um, and it's the same thing with Kathy. I mean, she's, she's, she has demonstrated incredible, um, uh, you know, organizational and engineering capabilities in her work. And I'm, I, I'm looking forward to, to what these two can do collaboratively to go ahead and make, the, the, the you know get this dream going and get a, getting us to the moon and and on to mars i agree i mean she's been sort of like a rock with this organization recently she has done so much for you know human space flight with nasa i give her like you're saying amazing credit and props for all that she's done and no matter what role she's in she's going to be fantastic uh, but yeah like you said it's more the perception of this isn't a demotion for her but you know, no matter what role she's in, I respect the heck out of her for what she does. 
All right. Now, before we kind of wrap things up here, I do want to bring it back full circle a little bit to the whole, you know, private public space flight thing. We were talking a lot about airplanes before. You've probably all seen the news about all of the unruly passengers aboard flights. It just so happens we have someone here who works for the FAA, and uh, it's not just airplane travel that the FAA deals with. So, Mark, I'm going to hand this segment over to you. Kind of on the lighter side, but serious still. Uh, I see press releases, which anybody can get from the FAA, but I see the same information that they send to us on broadcast-type notices, employees. And one of the things that's uh, become more of a news item uh, this year has been unruly passengers on scheduled airline flights. And from Newsweek, a recent article, I read that the entire year of 2020, they had 183 reports. 2021, there have been investigations of over 789. The FAA launched a zero tolerance campaign. They have violations of uh, fines for passengers of 25000 37000 some 45000 and they can face prison time. So kind of the uh, funny side of it is how long is it going to be before we get somebody that gets a little cranky in a spacecraft? And what what do you do when they try and pull the, uh, the emergency exit and, and leave? Eh, I don't think we really have to worry about that. People that are flying in space are really smart. They get extensive training. They know the environment they're in. But still, let's go back in history to, uh, just for fun, to 1968. October of 68, Apollo 7 launched with Wally Schirra, Don Isley, and Walt Cunningham. And on that flight, Shira became sick with a head cold, which he passed on to Isley. And anticipating issues with congestion in a sealed uh, spacesuit, Shira proposed that they not wear their helmets during reentry. And despite a request from Chris Kraft and Deke Slayton to wear their helmets, they refused and performed reentry without them. You can imagine there were probably some tense conversations during that moment. But really, the uh, the point I want to make is, oh my gosh, people just need to to be safe and take care of each other. And if the industry says, wear your seatbelt, raise your seat back to its full upright position, close your tray table, if they say those things and they happen to throw in, wear a mask when you're on a scheduled airline flight, it's just something we need to do and things will change. You know, here the FAA is fined so far this year for 2021 over a million dollars in fines. Some of these situations have been life-threatening, and I certainly don't think that we're going to face that in crewed spaceflight for a long time. But yeah, who knows? That's actually a really interesting point. I You don't think about that much. There have been rumors in the past, and I can't say if any of these have been confirmed or not. I know people have said it. NASA will never officially confirm it, that there may have been a mission where they padlocked the airlock out of concern for one of the astronauts on board. I know it's a little different from attacking a flight attendant, but obviously it's it's something you do still have to think about in spaceflight, as you know, the mental health of all the crew members on board, as well as the physical health 
of all the crew members on board. Both are super important when you're locked inside of a tiny tin can that if you open up the door, there's a good chance you're not going to survive out of it. That can apply to both airplanes and spacecraft if you think about it. So that's actually a really interesting comparison. And yeah, I guess it makes sense of, you know, they're telling you this for a reason. So you might as well just do it. And as you said, this is all temporary. As things go on, things will likely change. If you want to wear a mask in the future when they're not required, you can. But if they're required, just put it on for a few hour flight, live with it, and then go on with your life. Just like these people who get the experience to go in space. You put your helmet on, you go through the late re-entry, you get off, you take your helmet off. Things like that. That's actually a really good point, Mark. So I want to throw something else out really quick. Uh, I commented on a previous show, at least I think I did, about how SpaceX had some grief with the FAA about the FAA responding to their request for uh, some of the approval for launches and such over in Texas. Well, the FAA in July, they released a, a news that they were opening a space safety office in Houston so that they would be able to respond quicker to both SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. Those are locations in Texas and New Mexico, along with others in the region. So the FAA, uh, you know, we're from the government. We're out to help you. Uh, The press release also says that they've streamlined and modernized their commercial space launch and reentry licensing regulations to allow the agency to spend more time on safety oversight than less on paperwork. Amen. That sounds good to me. Also, the FAA has invited public to comment on a draft environmental review of the SpaceX Starship Super Heavy program. They've invited public to provide comment on this draft environmental review for the program that SpaceX has in Boca Chica, Texas. It is called a draft programmatic environmental assessment. They are opening hearings on October 6th and 7th as part of a 30-day public comment period ending on October 18th. So if you want to, uh, you know, kind of look over the shoulder, keep up with the news, uh, just Search for stories on SpaceX and Draft Environmental Review, Boca Chica, Texas. Uh, I hope that this thing goes smoothly. Everybody wants business to be able to do the things that business wants to do. But at the same time, environmental impact and the studies and you know freedom and restrictions are all an important part of being responsible for this planet that we live on. Well said, and I think that's the perfect place to bring this episode to its conclusion. So I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. Um, well, we got through it with half a voice, but we got through it. <laughs> you may sound like you have half a voice, but boy, everyone's voices have been heard in this episode, and that's what I love about this show. Thank you for joining us as well, Dr. Kat Robinson. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. And for the team and for the listeners who all put up with me, thank you very much. Y'all are amazing. Bless you. And Sawyer, how about a uh, tip on where people can send us comments? You got to, you know, you can always send us comments on our 
Twitter or Facebook pages. We are at Talking Space. You can always email us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. And, of course, you can shoot any of us a message directly. We typically receive those, and uh, we're happy to answer your questions, unless they're mean, in which case we won't. I'm joking. We are open to all uh, opinions. But thank you for joining us, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.